Hey everyone, it's Natalie here, and thank you for joining me in this week's episode. My guest for today is Anne Sefi Biasetti. Anne has been a practicing psychotherapist for over 29 years, and she specializes in somatic psychotherapy and in eating disorder recovery. She has a PhD in transpersonal psychology and is licensed as a clinical social worker. She is an author and speaker on embodiment, women's empowerment, body image, self-compassion, mind-body duality, and recovery. Her first book, Befriending Your Body, a self-compassionate approach to freeing yourself from disordered eating, was released in 2018. Anne is also a certified yoga therapist and a certified mindfulness and self-compassion teacher. I can't wait for you to tune in to my conversation with Anne. She shares generously about her own healing journey from an eating disorder, what recovery means from a transpersonal perspective, her doctoral research on self-compassion, and how our bodies can help return us back to wholeness. So, if this all sounds juicy and yummy to you, I'd like to invite you to make yourself a cup of tea or simply sit back and relax as you tune in. As always, my wish is that this conversation will bring you the nourishment and healing you need. Okay, so thank you so much for coming on to my podcast, Anne. I'm so excited to talk about talk to you, talk about your book, get an understanding of, you know, your history with an eating disorder, and just to have a conversation with you. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for inviting me on, Natalie. It's a pleasure to be here. Okay, so can you start by telling us a little bit more about yourself and what brought you into uh, the fields of eating disorders? Sure. Well, um, I am a somatic psychotherapist in Saratoga Springs, New York, and I've been practicing psychotherapist for 29 years now, so a long time. About 15 of those years has been in the somatic uh, work. And I specialize in eating disorders and disordered eating and body image and trauma as well. And I've been working in that realm for a very long time um, as far as what brought me in. Well, it's a long history and a long ongoing story, I would say, that, you know, based on my own early years of recovery as a teenager with anorexia, It was one of the things when I came into the field that I didn't even think that I would specialize in at all um, as I entered graduate school and then started to work. I was all of a sudden at a center and I was starting to be given a lot of cases of, you know, people that had disordered eating. And I just realized like, well, not only was this coming my way, but I was really good at working with them. Mm-hmm. And part of that I knew right away was because I really understood their experience. And um, I also realized that I was starting to work in ways with them 
that were different than perhaps what was out there, um, meaning that the cognitive behavioral approach has always been the way to uh, that we mostly work with eating disorders. But I had started to work with my clients in a different way based on what was very helpful in my own recovery path at this point. So this was long before I had gone back to school and done any research in, um, in the field. So at that point, um, I had, you know, into my, my 20s and early 30s, I had um, explored my own path of healing. I had been behaviorally recovered for many, many years at that point, probably since the age uh, of around 22, 23, I would say I was behaviorally recovered, meaning I wasn't engaging in um, any eating disorder behavior at that point in time. What was left over were the pieces that were swirling through my mind um, mm. about my body, about weight, mm. um, about, uh, you know, internal judgments that I didn't even know were happening, right? Um, about fears still of gaining weight and, uh, and not even recognizing that, right? Because they're so programmed and, and so part of our internal mental talk, right, that we don't even recognize it, right? So now we know clinically that those are the pieces that we call the the mental leftovers, right, Mm -hmm. in recovery, that we know when someone behaviorally recovers that that's one end of recovery. I call it kind of recovery 101, right? Mm -hmm. That's one end of recovery. And then we have to move on to really helping someone understand what's happening up here uh, in the mind, right? And there was another level that I touched that uh, then really changed up the way I worked with folks because I had also been heavily engaged in um, taking yoga and eventually then yoga training um, because what I started to recognize in my own life is how it immediately made such a shift for me in recognizing what was happening in my mind. So it was through my body that um, I first entered the world of mindfulness, Mm. right? So as I was on the mat and and practicing um, with regularity, like at least three times a week, more than, you know, even four, there were a couple of things I noticed. One is I noticed I started getting a lot gentler in my body, meaning um, my yoga practice Mm. fulfilled such a deep level for me of internal connection that I didn't care about getting to a gym or burning calories anymore Mm. or getting a certain shape in my body. I actually was just really thrilled that I was experiencing something very different in my body, which Mm -hmm. was this very calming uh, place that I had uh, never really felt before on an ongoing basis, right? Maybe mm-hmm. I felt it at the end of a yoga class, but not on an ongoing basis in my life. And the other thing that really, really stood out for me was I started recognizing how focused and attentive and, and present I was during that hour and a half. Mm-hmm. And I really started recognizing when I lost that out mm-hmm. in the, my life, right? Out of mm-hmm. my daily life. So I recognized, wait a minute, I'm so attentive and present here. And then all of a sudden that disappears. And I started really recognizing how and when it disappeared. So mm-hmm. that was the mindfulness aspect. All of it 
became very interesting to me. And I, I started wondering a great deal about how come I didn't know or learn enough about the body and the body's role um, in all of mental health to begin with, let alone recovery, right? So I started um, integrating aspects of this kind of work, um, especially after my yoga training. Um, it was very minimal and I really didn't know what I was doing, you know, at that point, but I was starting to just draw clients' attention to what was happening in the experience of their body as they sat with me. And then I started really emphasizing um, the mindfulness component long before I had done even any training in it. So I started noticing that my clients were having a very different shift, almost like the mm -hmm. shift that I had experienced throughout the years. So long story short, it was that kind of anecdotal you know, information that I was noticing um, as I applied these very, you know, sort of unskilled <laughs> approaches with my clients at that point that, wait a minute, there's something here, there's another level here that I knew I got to because all of a sudden there I was 10 years post, you know, behavioral recovery mm -hmm. where I could actually step back and, um, and notice that not only did I feel recovered, but I wasn't even thinking of the word anymore mm. uh, because I felt free. I yes. felt completely free. Yes. And so looking back, I realized that there were these stages, right? Mm -hmm. Stages of recovery. Behavioral is like that 101. Then comes the mind. Then comes the body, mm. right? And true freedom in, in and with one's body. Um, so it really led me on a path of exploration. So that's where I started. And, uh, then what I went to afterwards was a, was a whole other story. A lot of, a lot of in-depth training then. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Wow. You just said so much there and I want to unpack, I want to unpack your, your life journey and your life work a little sure. bit. Yeah. So First of all, I think it's just incredible that you went through such a healing journey yourself. And this journey sort of, you know, started off as a wound and it became your purpose. Yes. Right. Absolutely. And, and so I want to talk a little bit about the concept of recovery a little bit, because that word is really subjective and a little bit misunderstood. Um you know, in my own field here in London, mm -hmm. as a psychologist, I've heard um, different perspectives, views such as once someone has an eating disorder, they're going to have this illness for life, to mm -hmm. the other side of the spectrum, which is a full and complete recovery is possible. Mm -hmm. So I, I have a quote here from your book. That relates to that relates to what you're already saying, right? So you so you said, I was prepared to be in recovery for life. What I had yet to discover was that there was another level of healing that was waiting for me through my body, one that brought me complete freedom. Self inquiry through my body moved me from recovery into true and lasting healing and freedom. So. My question is, Anne, can you talk us through the difference between being in recovery for life and that mentality that you had and finding lasting healing and freedom? So what do you mean by that? And how did you recognize that 
I'm I'm free. I'm free from the cr- critical voices. My 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 you know obsession with my weight and calories. How how, how did you recognize that? Yeah, and I, I just will back up to say that that's where the messages in our recovery world are confusing, right? Um, very confusing yes. because you really have. Um, I hate to say two different ends of the spectrum, you know, where you have one end, as you said, that uh, the message is there that this will be for life, right? Um, And I I just want to say that I do believe that um, the whole perspective or the difference in perspectives has a great deal to do, you know, I'm also a, a transpersonal psychologist, which just to keep that in simplistic terms, basically means that we're always um, reaching and in discovery of higher states of awareness and consciousness for a human being. So we don't believe that uh, we just operate in knowing ourselves through one avenue, which is this mind, right? So mm-hmm. transpersonal psychology really opens up a more holistic view of an individual. So I say that because the view of recovery that says you will be in this for life also attach or attaches to a very Western view of, um, of a mind-body divide, right, or duality, um, and also a very Western view that looks at treating sickness and illness and symptoms um, uh, sort of separate from a whole being. And and, uh, what that also leaves us with is it leaves us to view uh, someone or for someone to view themselves as I am this, right? right? So in other words, it's a very big ego attachment to um, I am eating disordered, right? So often I hear clients, I know when they're very ego attached that way, because I hear them say things like my, my ed for eating disorder, they name it, right? Or my eating disorder, I am anorexic, I am bulimic, and Mm -hmm. that's the way they come to me. And the transpersonal end or the end that says complete freedom is possible is a very different perspective, right? So it's a holistic perspective that says, um, you are not this. This has, as I say in my book, this has come your way because there has been a disordering within both your body and your mind and your spirit, right? That there's been a disconnection along the way. Mm-hmm. And and that's basically what my, my book is about, right? Is this journey through figuring out both what's presently happening, but also where the disconnect happened. Where could you possibly have lost a sense of self that would have let in these kinds of disordering behaviors, Mm -hmm. right? So it's a very different perspective. So then very quickly, um, as, as people become educated on things like their internal body. So when I say that I found complete freedom through my body, one of the things I learned was that, my goodness, as a 16-year-old, when this started for me, I had, you know, unfortunately a traumatic background, you know, grew up in an alcoholic family and my father um, really suffered for years with cirrhosis of the liver. So it it was very traumatic at an early age watching that happen. And, um, 
And then he eventually uh, passed away from the disease. Mm -hmm. And so when I look back as a 16 year old where this started for me, right, I could either look at it and say, and I did at that point, you know, something's wrong with me, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. When I learned more, um, I was able to look back on it and say, oh, but of course, my entire nervous system was completely dysregulated and out of balance and Mm. disordering was taking place. As I write in my book in the beginning, um, after his death, um, you know, we were an Italian family. My father was a chef, you know, he used to make these beautiful meals. So, and he was a loving, lovely person with this disease, right. With his own disorder of alcoholism. And, um, and so when I went down to, would sit down to eat, um, which was normally a lovely connected experience, Mm -hmm. right. Fun in his restaurant that he owned and things like that. All of a sudden I, I felt sick to my stomach, right. I felt this embodied feeling that I didn't know or couldn't make sense of, right. Mm -hmm. My whole being, um, was filled with grief and didn't know what that meant, yes. right? So when I look back on it now, I can say, oh, of course, those behaviors came in as a way to soften and soothe that, mm-hmm. right? That is so different than saying, I am this disorder. I am sick. There's something yeah. wrong with me. No, basically it's saying, oh, I see. That is what I was using as my comfort and my tool to regulate. I was always trying to get back to wholeness, right? Mm -hmm. And eating disorders are always an attempt to get back to wholeness, to get back to the original state that everyone's bodies want to be at, which Mm -hmm. is regulated, calm, secure, safe, and held. Mm -hmm. Right? So that's where the difference between the two perspectives and it has everything to do with our treatment, right? Because if we're looking at it as symptom relief, behavior relief, and, and, um, and you are going to have this illness forever, then of course, we're not going to look at what heals the whole of a human, right? If we take this other perspective and look at, oh, I see, you just got off course. Mm-hmm. And and we're going to help you find the whole again because you've always been that. As yes. I say in my book, the beautiful terminology from the Buddhist teachings is Buddha nature. You've always been whole. Mm-hmm. You were born that way. Yeah. You know, we're going to find the things that that disorganize that and put those puzzle pieces back together again. Mm. You know? So it's a different, very different perspective. Yeah. And, and just hearing you talk about, you know, the Buddha nature and our inherent wholeness as beings mm-hmm. reminds me of this quote by Rumi um, that you might that you might know of. He says um, it's probably not in verbatim, but your task is not to seek for love, but merely mm-hmm. to remove all the obstacles that are in the way of connecting with the love that you already are. That's right. right. So from That's what right. so from what you're saying, it's this discovery that actually moving away from I'm, I feel broken, I'm sick, I'm ill and bad, something mm-hmm. is wrong with me to actually I understand the function behind my behaviors yes. and why it came about in the first place. It's not my fault, but it's my responsibility to now look at 
Okay, so I know that the restriction and the dieting and the weight, it's an attempt to feel safe and to feel good about myself, right? That's right. So, That's right. so then how, what were the indicators for you, Anne, that allowed you to say, I'm free? Like, because this concept, you know, I think for many people listening, um, lasting healing and freedom, it can sound really broad. So can we sort yeah. of bring it, bring it down to more... Sure. Concrete terms. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. So it's um, as I say to all my clients, you know, the the truth is, uh, this is hard work. You know, rebuilding a self is hard work, yeah, right? So hard, and, and it's lifelong that way. So, so what I like to point out is that um, I'm basically inviting them on a self growth path for life, right? Which means that you will always be in self-discovery. We should be. That's our developmental task from, you know, from pre-birth to death, right? And some would say beyond, right? Is uh, is always a self-journey, right? A self-growth. Um, this is why we're always, you know, seeking different ways to understand ourselves mm-hmm. and all of that. So eating disorders are no different. And what I tell my clients is that what that looks like concretely, what does freedom look like concretely? Well, There's a level of trust, number one, that was not there to begin with within your body, which Mm. most people don't have. I'll say that whether they develop an eating disorder or not is a whole other story. But we're all pretty much born, unfortunately, into our Western culture, at least disembodied, right? We're, We're trained to be, you know. So there's a level of trust that starts to form when we can really understand and listen in deeply to um, what's happening from the inside, right? So this level of trust shows up concretely in ways such as, you know something, I don't need to constantly try and manipulate my body to be a certain way. Um, If I don't go to the gym, you know, six days a week, um, because really what I feel like and what my body really wants is to just go three days a week or two days a week and maybe do some meditation or some yoga, whatever. I want some stillness in my life. I trust that Uh, If I work with my body, my body will work with me, right? Mm. So all of a sudden, a different sense of intuition starts to happen. People start to choose foods more based on what they are feeling internally, right? And sensing and exploring and discovering rather than some silly prescribed diet from the outside or listening to the messages of the diet culture that, mm. you know, rides on people's shame and blame and, you know, insecurity. Yeah, it's horrible. So all of this, yeah. So all of a sudden it starts looking concretely like, oh, um, I think I'm going to choose. I'm going to listen in. I'm going to act um, from a different place than what I was acting from, right? Which is reaching and grasping to from on the outside for verification of who we are, right? Mm. So I tell my clients all the time, one of the indications of this will be when they give up their scale, right? Because the scale is only an attempt at a verification at who and what your body is rather than listening within to what your body has to tell you about its own level of when it feels the strongest, when it feels the healthiest internally. Mm. So I often say to my clients, 
when will they know that they're in more of a sense of freedom is when they can answer these two questions that I have right at the beginning of the book, which is I ask people to answer the questions, you know, uh, when do you feel most healthy and strong? And initially people are so programmed through their minds to answer that saying, oh, when I was a certain weight or oh, when I eat this or have this diet or whatever. And what I tell people is you'll be able to know when you're reaching more of that sense of freedom, when you can answer those questions only based on what your internal experience of those two questions are. So in other words, when do I feel strong? Well, I feel strong when I can get up out of bed and feel, you know, a sense of calm and ease. You mm. know, I feel strong when I can, you know, take a walk without an ache or a pain, you know, yes. overriding it. Um, you know, I feel strong when I can, you know, approach food and let that be in my body the way it needs to be, you know, yeah. what does internal health feel like? Maybe internal health feels like um, I'm not cold all the time. You know, I'm not tired all the time. I have balanced energy, right? Yeah. I have um, my heart feels like it's working properly. I can breathe, right? So these are all experiences from the inside that are now this, this, a whole communication of trust. Yes. And so that's the difference there. And that's what it starts to look like concretely, this freedom, because once you have that internal trust that starts to develop and you start listening in that way, well, then just like some one of my participants in my research study said, you'll never leave your body behind again. Mm. You know, it's there with you. Yes, and it's yes. a beautiful sense of connectedness that keeps you mindful. Remember I said my journey was I realized, oh, wait a minute. Mindfulness was coming through my body, yes. right? And my body's information. It was then after that yoga journey that I went and did my mindfulness training, you know, my clinical mindfulness training that I did, you know, I explored heavily self-compassion as well, right? Because when we're talking about what is lasting freedom, it's these messages from the body. It's this body trust, but then it's also how we approach it. And that's why I say self-compassion has everything to do with it because self-compassion is the thing that's going to come in and really buffer all the awareness that you have. Because mm -hmm. this path is not easy. Yes. And we know it's not easy. So again, I love everything that you said. So much juicy content there that I want to, you know, unpack. Yeah. So two things that you spoke about was embodiment, which is what you're all about, and self-compassion, which, you know, these two um, elements are the foundation to your research and the way that you yeah. practice, right? So I yeah. want to dive a little bit into, into that. Sure. So first of all, you know, we met many years ago in Sedona doing our mindful self-compassion teacher training. And fast yeah. forward... Four years later, you completed a PhD, wrote an amazing book all about befriending your body in a self-compassionate way. So, Anne, will you be so kind as to define what self-compassion is? Sure. And like you said, why is self-compassion a key component to recovery? Because for many people, 
at least when I introduce the concept of self-compassion in my work, some patients would go, self-compassion, that's so like mushy. Or they go, yes, I'm so, I'm such a perfectionist. I'm so self-critical. I really need to learn how to be kind to myself. But that's just, that just feels so weird and foreign. So can you break it down for us? Sure. So self-compassion, I'll just define it, you know, according to the Mindful Self-Compassion Program or Chris Germer and and Kristen Neff's work, right? So self-compassion is really um, looking at kindness and how do we direct kindness toward ourselves? So the statement that we use from the MSC program, right, is how do you treat yourself like you would a friend, right? So if a friend is coming to you with this suffering or with any any kind of distress or suffering, um, you know, what do you say to that friend? How do you reach out to them? You know, what do you do? Is there anything physically that you do? Do you reach out? Do you give a hug? You know, do you do you wish you can do that? Right. So self compassion is really this um, very deep longing and wish to alleviate suffering in some way. Right. To say to someone, Oh gosh, even if I can't directly take that away from you. I I really feel it in my heart, right? I really feel the wish and the longing to do that. Like if I had a magic wand, I'd take that right away, right? And we know that if we just take that example for a moment, you know, if you're sitting with a friend or sitting with a loved one, um, we know that what is most needed in human nature, right, to feel safe and connected and cared for, it's not that we fix all problems, right? It's not that we take everything away, because that's impossible, right? Mm. But what we really need in human nature, um, and to grow and to feel that safety and connection, is just someone's wish and seeing and hearing us, right? Mm-hmm. Someone saying, my gosh, I just wish I could do that for you. I, mm-hmm. you know, I know there's nothing I can do with this to change this around for you, but know that I feel this deeply, right? So self-compassion is the process and it is a process. And that's why when people first hear it and they're like, oh my gosh, I don't even know what you mean. Or I I say, don't worry about that because this is a process, right? So the process of self-compassion is how do you begin to feel, and it's not feeling sorry for oneself, right? Because it's not pity. Self-compassion is not pity. That's one of the things I like to really clarify and and um, and make uh, make note that it's a big difference. It's not feeling sorry for oneself. It's not feeling pity. It's actually feeling a desire and a wish mm-hmm. to not have these blocks in your life anymore, right? So I spoke to a client recently who's been struggling and this young person said, I really, really don't want this in my life anymore. And that was a, that alone is a beautiful self-compassionate statement because what this person is saying is that they can finally turn to themselves and say, as if they were looking from the outside in, I wish I could take this away. Yes. Right. So, so there is the, the issue with self-compassion in eating disorder recovery is that the delivery has to be different. 
And when I went back to school, so, you know, I'll just say some other piece of my history, right? So I was very young when I first went to graduate school. I was one of those early graduates from undergrad. You know, I graduated in three and a half years, so went right on to graduate school in my MSW. So I was a clinical social worker for 20 years. And it was after I really started exploring all this mindfulness work and the self-compassion work and did all that training and also did my yoga teacher training. And then what I also, um, I'm also a certified yoga therapist. So when I did that very intensive embodied training, um, and that was a training fully in embodiment and learning how to be with others in a somatic approach, um, that is when I was most interested. I said, you know, I want to go back to school. I had always wanted to pursue my doctoral work um, and didn't do that 20 years earlier and yeah. went back. And <clears throat> so when I went back to school, because I had all those things behind me to begin with, you know, and all my own uh, enriched practices that I had been doing for so many years at that point, that's when I knew I had to pursue transpersonal psychology because I had already seen, and like I said, I had already been working with clients in a different way and seeing these beautiful outcomes. So when I went back, um, I wanted to research uh, eating disorders, but I wanted to research something very specific, which was the role that self-compassion played in someone's recovery, sustainment of recovery. Yes. So we have a lot of research out there that talks about getting someone to recovery, right? And that's not what I was interested in. I was interested in, I want to know uh, for, for those who relate to self-compassion in any way, I want to know what it did to sustain their recovery for at least three years and more. Mm -hmm. So everyone that I took into my qualitative study were, were uh, participants who were behaviorally recovered for at least three years. And they identified right away with self-compassion having something to do with not going backwards, right? And that's a very important point because what, um, what I found out right away with self-compassion is that that's exactly what it did. It kept people moving forward. It was a moment, it was the momentum. It was a verb in my study. And, and it was the process that unfolded with this momentum, with this very gentle, but yet fierce progression forward. Right. So there's a lot to say in all of that, but I'll just uh, but I'll just say that um, when I talk about self-compassion as a process um, in qualitative research and in the method that, that I used, which was a constructivist grounded theory, basically what you're coming out with is you're coming to understand the process of something. Right. Mm -hmm. So it's not just the qualitative experience of it, which is really wonderful to gather, but you're actually creating um, from the research a, a low level theory of yes. that construct that you're studying. Mm -hmm. So with self-compassion, what came out of the research was this low level theory of how recovery unfolds and how it can unfold when you include something like self-compassion. So what it led to was this really beautiful discovery for myself of why my clients with um, eating disorders and with a lot of trauma, especially, 
uh, why I can't approach them with just saying, let's learn to be kind to yourself or, oh, yes, that self-critical voice is there and that perfectionism is there. Let's just practice some Mm -hmm. skills of self-compassion and see Mm -hmm. how that goes. Because I was getting a lot of pushback for years. I was like, hmm, why can't people just take this on right now? Mm -hmm. And it was hard for me to remember, of course, so many years ago, my own process and how did this unfold for me? Right. But the more I when I did the research and when I came out at the end with it and really understood the process, I was even able to reflect back to myself and say, oh, my gosh, that's right. Self-compassion didn't come to me for years. Right. It didn't come to me for years. But what did come first? Hmm. And (laughs) everything that I heard my participants say, which was what came first was a mix of things from the outside and their body Mm. embodiment. Mm. So that came first. So things from the outside were people, places, events, Mm. sort of um, the things that we call, you know, the, um, you know, happenstance moments, Mm -hmm. you know, um, where they, I, I've actually, I've actually received a lot of information like this from people who have bought my book. So, um, over the last two years, I've gotten emails and things like that, that say, I work in a bookstore and I was filing away books and yours was one of them. And I had never heard of it before, but look at that. Lo and behold, now it's in my hands. So there's like a happenstance moment, you wow. know? And so so the, this young woman said, you know, I took it as a sign and beautiful thing, right? Um, so I say sometimes that outside influence, mm-hmm. my chapter two, right, yes. comes in the way of something like that, right? Mm-hmm. Or, or someone once told, someone told me recently, three people mentioned your name when it came to help, right? She said, the other one woman said, uh, I figured by the third person I should listen yes. and reach out to you, right? So there's an, uh, what we don't realize is that those are actually self-compassionate moments mm-hmm. coming in from the outside. Yeah. We may not recognize it as such, but that's what they are, mm-hmm. right? So there's a process happening, and it starts between the body's information and what's happening from the outside and how much we're beginning to take that in. That's where self-compassion begins along this road. Mm-hmm. So beautiful. I, I'm just so grateful that you decided to go back to school and get this research done because, you know, in your book, you um, illustrate it, right? Um, the theory of recovery called the self-compassion spectrum of recovery, yeah. right? And yeah. like you said, the first, the first few moments from feeling broken to receiving that outside in compassion, that's often part of the process. Sometimes we think that we are only making progress once we can see um, something changing in the way that we behave or the way that we feel. But even that transition from becoming more open to the resources that are out there is a very legitimate first step into recovery and healing. 
That's right. right? That's right. Exactly. So one of the things that you said um, about your theory or about the process is mm-hmm. that it's not linear, right? It's perfectly uh-huh. normal to sort of go in a spiral and right. almost like a labyrinth that you kind yeah. of dance in and out. So can you talk a little bit more about that? Sure. Yeah. So the spiral is super important on many levels. Um, and I, I teach this all the time to my clients from day one for the, to help them understand that um, there is no such thing as a straightforward path to recovery, meaning, oh, you get to this step, then you get to this step. And, you know, unfortunately, the rigid mindset that comes along with um uh, eating disorders to begin with, right? There's a, there's this rigid mindset and rigid approach is how we want to try and do recovery too. We want to try and do it in this rigid way that has these expectations and this very step process and linear path. And um, the way recovery really works is that it's going to go um, up and down and all around. And there's that spiral, right? I attest to that, yeah. Yes, yeah, meaning that um, you're going to have good days, you're going to have not so good days, you're going to have really horrible days, really dark days, and then you're going to have another really good one. The issue is if we don't learn how to ride those really difficult moments, um, we will never know that there's something different than that, right? Because what happens is that's when people get stuck, um, is during the very difficult moments, is when uh, is when everyone will get stuck and give up, right? So when I said that self-compassion was an action former, former and the momentum that's where self-compassion runs in, right? So it like runs in. It's not, it's it's hardly ever there during the good moments, right? Because people don't Mm -hmm. pay as much attention, of course, to the good moments or the tiny tries that they do, right? Um, But self-compassion really rushes in or needs to rush in, right? During the times when we're having those dark moments, those dark days, because that's when it can come in and say, listen, Remember, this is expected. This is hard. This is going to happen. You know, how do you come on back now? This Mm -hmm. is a moment. So self-compassion allows someone to understand that this is a moment in time, that there is impermanence to this moment. It will not last forever Mm-hmm. You know, that self-compassion rushes in just like that good friend who says, hey, I got you. Come on back. Mm-hmm. You know, like this is OK, you know, because self-compassion, remember, has already created a lot of beautiful understanding, self-understanding. You know, we can't go through this process without some self-understanding. We can't go through this process without knowing what brought us into this to begin with. And it's why, coming back to the beautiful information from the body, it's why I teach people both in the book, but primarily in my program that I developed from the book. I have an eight-week recovery program that teaches people from day one, from group one, we are they are taught about what's happening in their nervous system and in their brain, And in their body, when all these behaviors have taken place for a long time. Mm. So that someone said to me in my my 
program just the other day. She said a beautiful piece, which is the critical voice came back. You see, it's not like the critical voice is going to just disappear. That's been very programmed, right, for years. So she said, I was standing there, the critical voice came in so harsh, so harsh. She said, I felt my whole body and my whole nervous system get activated, which was beautiful awareness, right? And then she said the most gorgeous thing. She said, I said, then came in the voice that said, this is just your brain. This is just your nervous system Mm. and reacting to this program piece in your brain. Take a breath, come back. She placed a hand on her body where she could feel the tension. Yeah. And she was able to bring herself down in that moment. So there's the spiral. Without that understanding, which is compassion, right, Mm -hmm. which is self-compassion, she would have gone into a really, really dark moment, probably followed that moment with a lot of behavior. Yes. Right? That was unkind and harmful and hurtful. And instead, she stopped that whole cycle with compassion. Not that she took the cycle away altogether. It's going to happen. Yes. Going to happen. Mm. But if we could understand that self-compassion interrupts the cycle and allows for a new choice. Mm. I just feel the words that you say so much in my own body. (laughs) you know just from practicing self-compassion myself um and really also feeling you know times when in my body I would feel my fight and flight response or feeling more anxious or nervous and the power of self-regulation and self-soothing and having seen it in so many people who have participated in the MSc program that I teach it's just that beautiful um it's like a superpower. It, it doesn't cure. It doesn't That's cure right. anything. It doesn't fix anything. But it's like a loving embrace. You're saying, That's right. I'm here. It's okay. You're safe. That's you're right. safe. Your heart might be beating out of your chest. But That's we're right. here. We're here. We're good. That's um, right. And it sounds so simple, right? It sounds yeah. so simple. Putting a hand over your heart, taking uh-huh. a breath. But the difference between knowing it cognitively and then actually embodying it and then choosing to do it in the moment that takes a lot of self-awareness and practice that's right right. it really does so when we say um the piece of that it seems really simple i tell everybody it's actually a lot of work you know um yes it is simple and there are simple things um all around us that you know are like i said the messages of self-compassion Um, But it does take a lot of work and a lot of practice. Mm -hmm. And the other really wonderful news with it um, that I always share and that we do know from all the research on self-compassion is that it actually, if it is practiced for a long period of time over time, really does actually have a, a tremendous shift and change on our internal neuronal network, Mm -hmm. right? So that the self-critical thoughts um, really do dissipate over time and they don't evoke in the same way. They don't just arise 
as frequently and with such intense power as they have in the past. Now that's with a lot of practice, right? That's with years of practice. And I always share my own experience after years of practice of how I've noticed such immediate, immediate, um, powerful, powerful shifts that have changed my life, you know, and I can attest to that and give many examples of that, which I always love to do, you know, when I'm teaching the work. Um, but that's after long periods of time, right? So if you see, if you see the process in, um, that the book follows, right, in the work of self-compassion, you'll see chapter one that goes from feeling broken, right? That that's where everyone started. Um, then what do I have in the last chapter, right? Chapter nine is self-love. So chapter nine, so self-love is all the way at the end of a very long practice of guess what? (sighs) Self-compassion. So the other beautiful news with it is that, you know, what is that freedom? You can reach that freedom um, in your body and in your mind without feeling like this grand old self-love because that's another, those are other two words that I often tell, especially clinicians, I tell them, can you please ditch those words with your clients? It's nowhere near their vocabulary right now. And, you know, I put it, it's in the book for people who are feeling broken to see that there's another end to this, right? Mm. To see that there is freedom possible, yes, right? And there is this other life possible. And that's why it's in there, right? But I also, when I leave my program, tell people all the time, I really don't care if you're here or not because self-compassion is good enough. Mm. Yes. It is the one thing that carries us through life, not just through recovery, but Mm -hmm. through the ups and downs of life. Mm -hmm. One of the things that you said earlier is standing out in my mind. So you're saying when, when when you're working with your clients who have experienced a lot of trauma, as most of our clients have, most of us have, It's not it's not effective to just come in and say, just be kind to yourself and do this about yourself. And you talked a little bit about, you know, how they found self-compassion first through the outside and influences and then Mm -hmm. through the information, the internal messages of your body. Yeah. But I'm curious about how you introduce how do you introduce self-compassion to your clients? What is the language around that? Yeah, yeah. So the language, um, I'll tell you the two big phrases that I have um, that we developed um, through my program, right, the eight-week program that I have. So from day one, I introduce these two statements. One is, um, this is hard, (laughs) right, and out of fairness, right? So the this is hard um, comes from an immediate understanding that we're learning a whole new way of being with ourselves. And that is really hard, right? So self-compassion, as I said, um, in its lovey-dovey terms, it says, I want to be a friend and let me show up as a friend, right? Really what self-compassion is saying from the start is um, life isn't always easy. And that's Mm. why I'm here, right? So rather than giving all the lovey-dovey statements, I just come in and say, listen, guys, from the start here, we're just going to level the playing field. And, um, and this is hard work. 
you know, this isn't going to be, you know, love and light right now. <laughs> you know, this, is, this is hard work, you know, we're, we're here. So, so right from the start, that, that statement of this is hard, those, those three words um, have such an impact for folks right away because it's like they can take a breath. It's like, yes, it is. It's, so, you know, it's hard, yeah. you know. And then Out of Fairness was born from, um, because one of the things I did when I put together this eight-week program is I, uh, I did a little qualitative study myself and uh, just in my own, you know, office space for the year. I led three groups and, you know, um, collected the data from their qualitative experience of going through the program. And, uh, and so these statements were actually born from participants, you know, in the program. And, and um, when I taught them and, and when I teach them about their nervous system and understanding their, what their brain, how their brain is operating and understand how, you know, how for so many years from being disembodied that they haven't been able to gain corrective signaling from their brain and gut, right? And um, to understand that what they've been feeling is not incorrect, what they've been feeling from their body. It's just been, um, it's just, they just don't know how to regulate it, right? So it's not like what they're feeling is um, something that is so off center. It's just that um, the message from their body doesn't know how to be regulated, right? So when they learn all this information, it's like going, it's like group one is like going to a little anatomy class, you know? <laughs> and uh, and they come out and that's where I heard many people in those couple of groups that I had studied say, wow, gosh, I guess I better be a little fairer to myself. I guess I better be a little easier. I had no idea all this was going on inside of me, right? So it's like they took a little microscope and looked in for the first time because yes. they've always been looking out, right? Yes. So that's where that beautiful statement of out of fairness comes in. So I do the same thing individually for my clients. I teach them about what's happening, you know, especially when they come in with, with um, trauma. And, you know, quite honestly, I treat everyone uh, as if they have trauma because they do on some level, just to varying degrees. And what I tell everyone with eating disorders is whether a trauma was part of the instigation of the development of the disorder or not, the fact that you have had these behaviors go on for a period of time or years is traumatizing. Yes. <laughs> so the eating disorder in and by itself is trauma. Mm -hmm. I don't care if you had like the perfect, you know, um, like very stable and secure upbringing um, uh, prior to that, just the, by the fact that this disordering came in and has uh, lasted in your life for a period of time, that's very disheartening. That's very destabilizing, you know, mm -hmm. so anything that interrupts a sense of self is traumatizing, yes. right? So I treat all my clients through the door of trauma and um, and through the you know skill set that I use in, in trauma work, and and so when they understand or begin to understand that this is what's happening inside, then I can say to them, you know, out of fairness, can you understand why this has been so hard for you to get a leg up on? Yes. And then they're like, then they could take a breath. Yes. And they say to me, as a matter of fact, most people in the program say to me that they actually use, you can't see my hands right now, but they use, they like put their arms far out with their hands and they say, well, 
wow, it now feels like it's outside over here. Mm. And so what they're saying is they can now hold their eating disorder and what they've been going through at a distance. Mm. And that's everything that I said earlier about what's the difference between a holistic or transpersonal perspective on healing right, an illness, right, or disordering, and what this more medicalized view of recovery is. A medicalized view of recovery makes people attached to it very egocentrically, Mm -hmm. right? And this other view makes people able to hold it outside of themselves and look at it externally, right? Mm -hmm. Look at it from the inside out now, you know, and say, wait a minute, You know, there's something else, you know, that I have in here. And this has been disrupting that, Mm. you know, and people don't know what that means unless they start to feel it. So my whole program is about somatically having people feel, even if it's for a minute, a different nervous system. Yes. (laughs) That's so important. Yeah. And I think that connection um, decenters decenters them from that default automatic wake up food, body, food, body to actually there's a deeper layer, deeper dimension that's already, you know, you talk about coming home in your book. It's that sense of home, like I've I've come back, like I've always been here. That's right. All of this stuff. It's like distracting me from this amazing, like, wow, regulated whole wholeness that I feel on the inside. That's right. Yeah. Exactly. It really takes people away from it to the point where they had no idea they even had it or could have it again. Mm. And that's the big difference. Yes. Which is why I think yoga... Although it's quite, you know, we talked about this in our previous conversation, how yeah. this word can be quite misunderstood or loaded. Yeah. So somatic practices or embodied yes, practices, yeah. um, they are so important and they're often yeah. missing in the treatment of eating disorders. Yeah, yeah I often call it, I, I you know, teach and um, train professionals with this and I, I call it the missing link. Uh, it is the missing link in mm. recovery work, and I'm, you know, I'm, I'm very uh, strong, you know, in my opinion of that. Yeah, yeah, and you know, the the name of my website, and mm-hmm. it's called the Inner Connection, and it's all yeah. about helping people touch touch into this different regulated system. Because once you get even a taste, right, of mm-hmm. that sense of wholeness or your Buddha nature, it changes mm-hmm. the game. Mm-hmm. completely absolutely so i want to talk a little bit about your expertise in embodiment and somatic interventions so i have your i have your book here look at all the <laughs> i was like oh my god this is so good this is so great um great <laughs> there are so many amazing practices that slowly eases the reader into developing a more attuned and aware relationship with their body so you know, in your book, you talk about how you, you you saw shifts immediately in the way that your clients experience themselves and their, their process when you included these practices into your work. So I want to give our listeners an idea 
of what mm-hmm. this actually looks like because somatic embodiment like mm-hmm. we both get it you know we both get yes, it but yes, yes. for a, a person who has never tried any of this stuff or who has never tried mm-hmm. um a mind body practice what does that look like in in practice and what were the shifts that you noticed in your client's process Mm-hmm. So what it looks like is sort of um, like what I did the other day when when someone entered the room. So I had a you know a client who entered the room who came in and said, "Oh my gosh, you know I, I'm feeling so off today. Um, I ha- I've had a really bad week," and she was ready to go into, of course, everything that she held in her mind, right? Everything that was uh, negative and that she did wrong. And, um, and how I could tell, I could tell, right. Um, so as a somatic therapist, one of the things I look for immediately, as soon as a client enters into my space or even online with me, right. Is I'm looking to see what's happening in their eyes and their facial expression. I'm looking to see the way they carry themselves into my room or right here at the space. I'm looking to see if I can see how they're breathing and get a sense of that with them. So I could, tell that her breathing was really choppy and I could tell that she was basically from the head up you know and that she was very disconnected from her body so one of the things I introduced right away which is so simple it's in the very beginning of the book is this little practice I call feet spine and seat it's the simple yeah yeah, it's the simplest little thing and and I do it a little differently in person I you know stay with it a little longer of course and a little deeper and basically what I just ask my clients to do is I I say when they enter the room I like to invite their body into the room as well so if Mm. I see that dysregulation happening I say let's just take a moment you and I I said we're going to take a big breath together and I like them to use a little movement in their seat Mm. so just lift their arms overhead shake their seat around a little bit why because movement organizes the brain movement and breath you know responds our motor processes through our motor cortex in our brain and organizes the rest of the brain so that's all we need in that moment and then I tell ask them to please just press their feet into the ground I want them to feel that they're present in here press their feet into the ground and then I ask them to see if they could follow that line of sensation because if you press your feet strongly into the ground you'll see that all of a sudden a whole bunch of muscles start to activate in our Mm -hmm. legs and all the way up into our lower back even right Mm -hmm. so I ask them to see if they can follow that up see if they can start following that line up and then it travels all the way into their whole spinal column Mm -hmm. doesn't it right and you follow it up follow it up follow it up all the way up to the head the neck right and then as you exhale just let that all slowly release and you'll feel your seat, right? And you'll feel your your glutes just grounding into the cushion beneath you, right? Yes. So just that little process of doing that a couple of times and then this client's response was, oh, wow, huh, that's so funny. I'm not even sure of half the things that yes. I was thinking about, yeah. right? Yeah. So it's such a beautiful shift immediately. And mm. what it teaches someone right in that moment, right in that moment is, wait a minute, I could be in a different space. So it all, it immediately introduces someone to the choice, the potential 
of choice, which when someone has been ravaged by habitual behavior for so long in their lives, the number one thing they lose is choice. Habit removes choice from Mm. our lives. Mm. I love that. And Yeah, and the number one thing that they're introduced to from the very beginning is that's weird. You mean I have a choice in how I could feel? They may not know how to gather that yet, and they may need me from the outside still guiding them. Mm. But the fact is, as long as they take that guide over and over again, eventually it's going to come to them. I Mm. hear it all the time in my program, and that's only eight weeks, Mm. right? It's only eight weeks that we're together in a group, right? And I hear people then saying things like, I realized I wasn't breathing. I was holding my breath. And so I took one of those breaths that you taught us and I did that practice that you taught us. And I'm like, there you go. You know, Mm -hmm. so they've integrated now the somatic skills that I've taught them. They've brought them embodied into their life, right? They've Mm -hmm. integrated them. They have a choice now Mm -hmm. of how to act differently in a moment. Powerful. Very powerful. Mm -hmm. So when we think about the word embodiment, right, Mm -hmm. we've spoken a little bit about the practices, but what does embodiment mean? So in your book, you talk about embodiment as the grounding in recovery, and there Mm -hmm. are three phases. We probably don't have time to go like dive deep deeply into all the different phases but i thought there was you wrote so beautifully about the different phases of embodiment and i think what would be good for us to focus on is awareness of emotion in the body yeah um because emotion manifests in the body as an energetic response to an external or internal trigger That's right. Mm -hmm. So something that I highlighted in the book that I want to share with the readers is is this. It's on page 85 for anyone (laughs) listening who has has the book or is thinking of getting the book. Finding the correlation between emotional states and the sensed experience in your body is a huge leap in reconnecting to self, self self-development, and emotion self-regulation. When my daughter was 13... She said something very wise. Mom, I realized that when I'm feeling sad, I also don't like the way my hair looks or my clothes. But when I feel happy, my hair and clothes can be the same, but I like the way I look. (laughs) When I read that, I was like, wow, she is so wise because... (laughs) Yes, I said the same thing as I stood in my closet with her. We were trying on different clothes and and she was flinging her hair around. She said, and I, and this is long before I wrote the book, right? Um, this is long before I wrote the book. And I remember standing there going, oh my gosh. And I said to her, honey, what you just said is what I try and have everyone understand, you know? And I remember I wrote that, uh, I wrote the word down, knowing that I would use them at some point along the way. Yeah. Yes. So, um, I think, you know, the, the phenomenon of feeling fat is such a big, yeah. big thing in, um, 
eating disorder recovery, and we can go yeah. all into that. But I just want to come back to my original thought, which is, yes. tell us a bit about embodiment. Expand on that a little bit for us in relation to awareness of emotion in the body. Yeah. So, um, well, there's a whole lot to say. We could probably do a whole hour and yeah. a half just on this one, Natalie, right? Because I do say it is the most important aspect, actually, you know, but I'll try and keep it simple. So just <laughs> with a simple, simple definition of embodiment. So what I just said before um, about when I teach my clients somatic skills, such as what grounding actually feels like in their body or what a breath actually a released breath actually feels like in their body and then they come back a week or two later and they tell me dr ann i i had this experience and i used this or i used that that means that they took the somatic skill that i taught them and they brought it into the into life or what we call the lived experience so embodiment means gaining an, an internal awareness of the sensory experience of your body and actually now moving through life with that, right? Mm. So as I sit here in the chair, I notice a little you know, discomfort in my low back. So I'm going to shift my seat and I'm very aware of that. And now I can notice immediately that there's been a little change in that sensory experience mm. in my back body, right? So here's um, embodiment becomes how do we start to live in the connected sensing feeling body? And then from there is when we start to explore that, oh, look at this, lo and behold, um, everything that I feel, right, my emotions um, also seem to live in this body magically, right? And what we know from consciousness studies, right, and what we know from the lovely world of neuroscience, which I'm, you know, hugely uh, embedded in as far as my studies and, and what I love to teach as well, is that we do, in fact, know this wholeheartedly now. We know how emotions the sensing body, right? Our sensations from our body um, are absolutely connected to what we think as well. So it's like all three are happening at the same time, right? Mm -hmm. It's called embodied cognition. One feeds the other. So every bodily sensation has... Um, every emotion has a bodily correlate, we call it, as I mm -hmm. said in the book. Mm -hmm. And then and then from there, it produces thought, right? Mm -hmm. So it produces our perception of that, right? Mm -hmm. So it's kind of like what my daughter said. She noticed as she was moving around there, you know, that when she's happy, her emotion, actually, she ends up having a different perception or perceived sense of image, right? Mm -hmm. Of how she sees herself. And when she's not, it could be the same outfit, the same hairstyle, everything. 
but all of a sudden that looks different, right? Mm. And this is such a powerful piece because as you said, in eating disorder recovery, one of the things that's happening, and like I said, we don't have time to get into it now, but um, but it is such an important concept that I, I teach about a lot, is that the messages, the sensing, mes- the sense, uh, sensory experience of their body, right? The sensing body is, um, is again, because we're cut off from those messages, they're not being programmed correctly, mm. right? They're not being fired in the brain correctly. Yeah. So we miss those messages. We miss the first line of communication. And then guess what we're left with if we miss the first line of communication? We're left with giant emotions and we're left with just thought and image mm. right so we've that's why i say it's the essential piece of recovery here mm. if we want someone like you know i always say we we want people to disengage from focusing just on image 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 oh body image right you hear this all the time right body yeah. image what body image is the number one maintaining factor in this person's you know recovery and it's like yeah it is for everyone right and and so but what are we doing to help people disengage from that constant perception you know of self through image right we someone can't disengage from that until they are reconnected with what they're sensing in their body because otherwise a bad feeling, right, or an overwhelming feeling will always lead to them believing they look horrible. Mm -hmm. They look fat, right, because they can't sense uh, correctly those messages are not being received correctly. So we have to start there and start with how to teach people to receive these messages correctly from their body before they go up here yes Yes, before they go to what they're perceiving uh yeah very 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 important I I actually think it's the primary piece in in recovery same Mm -hmm. here it's all about that regulation from the inside out that's right exactly yeah so you know, I would love to talk forever about this. I'm so passionate <laughs> yes. about this, but our time is running out and our time is running <laughs> yeah. out. So I just have a few closing questions for you. Yeah. So what would you say your biggest learning or insight has been through your own recovery and in your life's work um, in this field? Big, big question. Sorry, I'm throwing it at you. (laughs) Loaded one. Let's see. What would I say is my main learning? Well, first, again, in in my own recovery, I would say, again, the main learning is that there is freedom. Mm -hmm. That there is absolute possibility of full recovery and freedom. So that, that is, uh, that, and that has become my life's work, I will say. You know, in in reconnecting with that and learning that within myself, um, it has been my life's mission to help people to achieve that same level of integration yes. and wholeness and uh, and what I call the return home. You yes. know, 
Yes. So that has been my life's work. Uh, when when I uh, wrote the book and sent it to, I sent the book to my one of my very first supervisors that I had in my clinical work from you know 29 years ago, and uh, and she wrote back to me and she said, "My God, is this your life's you know journey?" She said, "This is everything you've ever been." interested in you know unfolded into one I said yeah I said it really is you know so I was excited to put that out into the world for people to know it's a possibility yes Ooh, I'm getting goosebumps Um, (laughs) because you know the the two words returning home was one of the the names of my podcast one of the names I had for my podcast and um, I, I saw so much of myself in your book through my own journey yes so yeah yeah. thank you next question next question time's running out (laughs) so you know we we talked we talked a little bit before about how we don't really like the word eating disorder as a way to talk about this process of healing so in an ideal world and if you could what would be some alternative words that you would use to replace the word eating disorder um, you know, probably I would use a disconnected um, or lost relationship with body and food. Mm. A lost relationship. Because mm. that's what I tell everybody we're on a journey to do here. I tell everyone that I'm going, you know, their, their work with me is for them to understand um, how to build a relationship with their yes. body and food again. Love that. And, and self, of course, and self. So really, it's just the lost relationship. That's all, you know. Mm, the lost relationship. Very nice. So <laughs> we've come to um, the part that I've been looking forward to. Mm-hmm. And that is for you to read that beautiful passage um, mm. in the closing chapter of your book that outlines yeah. your, your beautiful wish Um, which I share wholeheartedly to everyone out there who is um, finding hope and confidence in their, in this struggle to reclaim the lost self. Yeah. Yes. So, Anne, would you, would you read that passage for us? Absolutely. So um, this is my self-compassionate wish uh, for everyone out there listening. And it was to my audience for anyone picking up the book. So um, what I ask, actually, if you're hearing this now, uh, to see what it's like to place a hand on your own heart or anywhere um, on your own body that feels soothing to you. So it doesn't have to be the heart space. It could be anywhere else. And just listening to the words, um, my wish for you as you go forward in your compassionate embrace is for you to be your best friend and to never leave yourself behind again. My wish is that you connect with something or someone that moves you and touches your heart each and every day. And my final wish for you is that you live your life in joy and freedom and that you never forget the limitless possibilities you possess when you see and hold yourself in compassion. That was so beautiful. Thank you so much, Anne. Thank you, Natalie. It was a pleasure to be here with you. Yes, I really enjoyed our conversation. And I'm, I can't wait to share this with all of our listeners. Um, beautiful. Thank you. 
So where can we find more about your work? What's your what's your Instagram handle and your website where we can? So Instagram, uh, website, and Facebook, all the same. It's Anne, A-N, Embodied Life, E-M-B-O-D-I-E-D-L-I-F-E. Um, so that's for both the website on embodiedlife.com and then Facebook um, and also Instagram. And uh, yeah, on the Instagram, you know, you'll find a lot of, the quotes, even things that we've uh, talked about, you know, I try and really put out that inspiration uh, daily for folks as um, gentle reminders and reminders of the whole healing path. So it's not just all, you know, eating disorder recovery focused. It's a lot of it is really understanding the whole path of, of once again, integrating with who you really are. So, um, so yeah, I'd love for folks to connect with me there. Okay. Thank you, Anne. Thank you, Natalie. Have a wonderful day. Thank you.